Hello, how did this get praise? Listeners, uh, I just wanted to do a little intro for this episode. Um, we skipped a week, you might have noticed, and uh, the large reason for that uh, was we were originally going to share this episode right after the news of the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg, and uh, frankly, we just decided, fuck it, and uh, decided uh, to take a little break from the podcast and focus our energies more in uh, how we can get involved, and so... Uh, just want to say that's the reason why this episode was a week late. Um, and we encourage you uh, with all of the shitty, 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 shitty things happening to uh, get involved, get involved at the local level. That's really important to me. It might be important to Stefan too. Yeah. 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 He was yeah, yeah, yeah. He was peeing. Sorry. He's back now. <laughs> Um, um, yes. First of all, vote, and then second of all, do tons of other shit at the local level as well. Yeah, to help um, help people live with this terrible system we have. Because we, dear fuck, we are firm believers in voting. This one, it, it's the absolute bare minimum of actions at a preventative level, but yes. there's so much that needs to be done. Um, so that's why this episode's a week late. And I want to say we did record part of this episode before some of this news. And so if we sound a little cheerful at the beginning, <laughs> don't worry. Let it be known. Moods <laughs> have declined. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's get into the episode. Say hello to my little All right. Oh, we, we got to get Joe. I don't think he's going to do it. He no, tell him to do it. Oh, my God. Okay. Joe, come do it now. <laughs> okay, Joe, Joe is here, Joe, and we're going to start in Joe, three, Joe, Joe, two, Joe, Joe, one. Joe, Joe. What are you drinking there, Kyle McLaughlin? Is that, is that a Heineken? No, no. You want an American beer. Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> So good. Hello. I love that uh, man. That's <laughs> uh, pretty good. Paps blue that velvet. That is good. Ribbon. I love it. Paps blue velvet ribbon. Uh, hello. Hi. <laughs> and welcome to How Did This Get Praised, the movie podcast that will put its sickness inside of you. Yeah. Uh, I'm Daniela Mazio. That was my boyfriend, Joe Engelman. And uh, he's gone, but I'm here with my co-host. He's hotter than a wigless Isabella Rossellini. It's oh, shit. Carlson. <laughs> Thank you so much. I wasn't expecting that sort of compliment at the top, but that's why I should read the script. <laughs> I was reading in um, IMDb uh, the trivia for the movie Blue Velvet. Um, one of the mm. trivia pieces was... Isabella Rossellini's hair in blue velvet resembles the hair of Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, on purpose? Did David Lynch say that? That's what he was going for? I don't know. <laughs> but, but it is. It, like, really is, is, actually. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Well, welcome. Uh, before we get started talking about this 
secret movie, uh, a little bit about the show. If you are a film lover of any creed, you're probably familiar with the quote-unquote canon, aka those movies that uh, anyone who watched Twin Peaks for one and a half seasons is like, well, you totally have to see this. Well, these movies are considered to be the greats for one reason or another, but we start asking, why do these movies get praised? So throughout each episode, we are going to take one, count them, one beloved movie, whether a financial success, critical success, cold favorite, or film, which might best accurately describe this one with some sort of legacy. We're going to talk about two things. One, why we think this movie got praised. And two, is it actually any good? Because after all, who are we going to let decide what's good? Two cool as hell best friends who met each other in a high school film class or some asshole who drinks Pap's Blue Ribbon? <laughs> no, Heineken. No, hi. That, that's what I'm saying. Will you listen to Pap's PBR, bro? Yeah. P-bro? Uh-huh. Uh, well, if you ever You drink loved- Pap's Blue Ribbon, don't you? Hush. If you've when, ever when loved When we lived together, that was your beer of choice for <laughs> sure. I'm just saying. Stefan, I'm trying to say our tagline. Go, go for it. I'm sorry. No, I'm too hurt now. <laughs> I hurt myself. <laughs> uh, if you've ever loved a movie despite feeling like it wasn't made for you or you hated a movie that you were told it's made for everyone, this is the podcast for you. Uh, last bit of housekeeping in place of ads you might be accustomed to with like very fancy podcasts that buy into capitalism. Uh, Stefan and I are selecting an organization each episode that we'd like to encourage you to donate to. We're not affiliated with any of these organizations, but we support their missions, especially as they combat some real world issues that might be adjacent to some of these movies, but are probably handled much better. So given the subject matter of today's episode, I want to ask that you consider donating to and supporting A Long Walk Home. A Long Walk Home empowers young artists and activists to end violence against all girls and women. They advocate for racial and gender equity in schools, communities, and our country at large. You can learn more at alongwalkhome.org and by continuing to listen to this episode, And if you continue listening to learn more about A Long Walk Home, you can support because for every listen, up to 25 listens, we will donate $2 per listen for a total of $50. It was a very convoluted way of putting it, but we're going to do it. We're going to donate up to $50 to A Long Walk Home and their fight to end violence against women. We just Mm -hmm. donated $50 to Sista Afia Community Wellness. Uh, which was the organization for our Joker episode. So some folks are going to get some very important resources for mental health. And hopefully together through our donations, through your support, we can help uh, fight uh, violence against women. And what a segue because Stefan, what movie are we uh, talking about this week? She wore blue velvet, bluer than velvet was the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, American (laughs) classic, Um, Uh, darling of the American canon. 
I was Angelo Badalamenti there on the piano. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds um, me of that one video of him composing the Twin Peaks, how he composed the Twin Peaks scene with David Lynch. Does, does David was like, go, Angelo, <laughs> we're in a dark forest. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, this bright light comes and it's a girl. <laughs> It's like, dun, dun, do you dun, think uh, dun, dun. do you think David Lynch has ever tried to work with Bjork? I think so. Like, uh, can, like can, can you, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. This is just an excuse for us to do a bit. Uh, <laughs> Bjork, Bjork, I got a great movie for you. It's about a girl, a girl trying to make it in Hollywood. What do you got for me, sweetheart? She is in the birthplace of art. <laughs> she is American beauty. That, that's the theme. <laughs> I haven't seen an Inland Empire, but I assume that's, that's that probably, movie. <laughs> From what I've heard about it, that's... That's basically what it is. Uh, uh, before we get too ahead of ourselves, uh, Stefan, do you want to tell us, uh, for those who don't know, what Blue Velvet is roughly about? Um, Blue Velvet is about a young Kyle McLaughlin. He returns from college when his dad has, I believe it's a heart attack, some sort of accident. Uh, he's in the hospital. He comes home and he finds a severed ear in a paper bag in the middle of the field. He goes to investigate it and he gets involved in this investigation in the seedy underbelly of Lumberton, the town he grew up in. And he investigates the lives of Dorothy Valens, a um, lounge singer, and uh, Frank, her kind of keeper, who is holding her husband and son hostage. And uh, uh, shenanigans ensue. (laughs) I think that's how I've ended every plot summary. <laughs> You're like shenanigans or hijinks and hilarity or some variation. I think I did that for both Fight Club and Joker <laughs> as I try to do these off-the-cuff summaries. <laughs> you have to do them every time and you don't prepare. I mean, I feel like it's better if I just try to do it <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, so yes, we're talking about... Um, David Lynch's 1986 movie, Blue Velvet. Before we talk about Blue Velvet, though, how are you doing, Stefan? Question mark. Well, I'm doing, I'm doing good, uh, for the most part, despite the horrible apocalyptic conditions outside. Uh, I'm doing okay. That's good. Your voice sounds deeper this week. Is that just Does me? It? Yeah. Uh, maybe I'm I'm a little more energized than I was last week, um, but yeah, no, I, I feel like we were really tired during Fight Club. Um, Fight Club's a really tiring movie to talk about. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about Blue Velvet. I really yeah. am. This is the f- most excited I've been out of the three movies. The first two I had some sense of dread over, but yeah, this one's very similar. I, I probably, especially as uh, a female identifying person should probably feel more dread about this movie but uh spoiler i don't (laughs) so um excited to talk about it yeah uh uh, it has been there's god i 
the two things you say every week is like, despite everything going on and hijinks and hilarity, <laughs> like those are your two catchphrases now. Yeah. Um, In these but, uncertain times, yeah. I am. <laughs> okay, how are you? I'm, you know, I'm fine. Uh, yeah. I am stressed and I am, you know, I, this is the, like, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not an alcoholic, I promise. <laughs> but before the pandemic, I had a drink maybe twice a month and I have a drink every night now. I don't get drunk. I don't have more than one drink usually. Yeah. But I have a drink every single goddamn night. And I, it's like that, it's just there. <laughs> I'm very much the same. Uh, well, I used to have a drink like twice a week, but now it, I'm, I'm clearly up to every, around every day. Yeah. Uh, it definitely averages out to seven times a week. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, it, and it's just like, it's just the right amount to take that edge off because I am on edge all the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, followed uh, Susan Orlean on Twitter. Okay. Who wrote <laughs> oh the book. God. That adaptation is, she's the Meryl Streep character in yes. adaptation. Um, and she just tweets about how she's drinking wine all the time. Well, did like, she it really escalated because did you see i i mean i started following her because there was one night where she just went viral for a stream yeah, of drunk tweets that's when i started and, following her and they were incredible <laughs> although at this point i'm like i'm a little concerned but i'm also like we might all be alcoholics right now i'm not really sure um but uh yeah she's been really relatable uh come full circle uh i don't know that's not full circle at all but <laughs> <laughs> adaptation we love her yeah 20 something years later 18 whatever we love her on twitter she's a queen uh, um well we're both here we have a lot of energy you know in yeah. spite in spite of these trying times we're very energetic and why shouldn't we be because we are talking about david lynch baby we love david lynch we mm -hmm. stan the log lady we <laughs> fuck hard to angelo badlamenti <laughs> we are just so hard up for david lynch and uh i do want to say before we get into this conversation i do want to note that uh, this film has some very serious and upsetting scenes in spite of our energy. And, yeah, you should not laugh while you're saying that. And, and comedic dis, dis, uh, disposition. Yes. Uh, these scenes uh, depict physical and sexual violence against women. And undoubtedly, we're going to be talking about some of these scenes, at least mentioning them and uh that could be triggering for some we want to acknowledge and respect that and uh respect that this episode might not be for you and we will do our best to dissect what's happening with those scenes and mm -hmm. really thoughtful about them but they're probably going to be talked about violence and sexual violence against women is going to be talked about so keep that all in mind as we move forward if you don't if you don't want to listen, I'm, I wouldn't hold it against you. I myself am a survivor, so uh, 
it's not always easy to talk about these things, but uh, I am excited to get into this movie. And uh, if you do decide to skip this episode, at the very least, still check out A Long Walk Home, which is a great organization. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, sexual violence against men, too, in this movie. So You're right, there is. And thank you for bringing that up because uh, that is something that is also uh, worth mentioning and getting into and that can be triggering. Uh, And hopefully we will do our best to cover all of this and uh, make some sense of why it's there and uh, if it's even handled well, um, which I think we'll have a lot to say about in in any direction. So uh, that, yeah, there's that. There's your trigger warning. Uh, I am not triggered by the phrase trigger warning. So take that people who are snowflakes to snowflakes. (laughs) So Stefan, what's your history with Blue Velvet? I watched Twin Peaks in college and absolutely fell in love with it. Um, It was my favorite show. It's still my favorite show by far. Um, And I wanted to check out War Lynch. So I watched Mulholland Drive. I watched Eraserhead. And then I watched this movie on a plane. (laughs) <laughs> the first time which is a really bad idea i wouldn't recommend it the i was like behind shielding. you like uh <laughs> yeah i think i was like shielding my ipad <laughs> from view whenever i could but also uh i this year became a massive david massive massive quantities <laughs> uh god we're gonna be doing that the whole episode i became a huge david lynch fan uh because stefan and joe of this of the introduction <laughs> to this podcast uh watched twin peaks with me for the first time and then we watched mahalan drive and uh and then i rewatched blue velvet and i we also watched dune and we watched dune um, not as great as the other ones all right still. r.i.p dune <laughs> um and we watched what did jack do don't forget oh yeah <laughs> who talked about <laughs> Um, so yeah, so I, and then I want to rewatch Blue Velvet for this podcast and Stefan and I have watched it twice in preparation for this podcast together. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be big scholars about this movie. Oh yeah. Um, Um, I was actually thinking about before this podcast that I don't know what I'm going to say (laughs) because I've been thinking, I've been turning it over in my head over and over again and I can't come to a conclusion. So I'm like, you know what? Just going to let it happen. Thank God I wrote out an outline for this one. Yeah. Um, you did a very good job of Fight Club, and I'm grateful because I didn't know what I was going to say about Fight Club. <laughs> so. um, That's teamwork, I- baby. <laughs> so really quick before we get into the trivia, Stefan, just ver- we, we mm. just went on a huge tangent. So yes. in one sentence, how would you say you feel about Blue Velvet? Um, that's a really hard question. Uh, do you do you want to go first so I can think about it? Yeah, sure. I would say I think Blue Velvet is challenging intellectually, emotionally, ethically, <laughs> and patriotically. Okay. I'll, I'll leave it at that. There's a lot there. I'm going like to say... Um, it's a horrifying psychosexual romp of Americana that's also kind of hilarious sometimes. Oh, yeah. Very funny. 
and not just because of the laughing gas. You know what, Stefan? We're getting yeah. segments now, and that's what I love about this podcast is we have segments now. And you know what this segment is? What what segment is this? We're about to get into the cold hard facts. Oh yeah, the one order. Boom boom. Yeah, cold hard facts about Blue Velvet. Uh, this was released September nineteenth, nineteen eighty six. Um, limited release about. Can I do my math right this time? Thirty four. Right, that's right. Thirty four mm. years ago, this movie made eight point six million in North America. Was fairly popular worldwide as well, but uh, didn't really increase that worldwide uh, uh, box office too much. Um, it was met with what one might say very mixed reactions, mm -hmm. but all of the reactions to Blue Velvet were very uh, passionate, one way or another. Polarizing, um, right? Very polarizing. Um, very similar to our last couple of movies in kind of the larger conversations it spurred. Um, there were lines around city blocks kind of in protest of this movie and just in, in fury. There was reports of mass walkouts and refunds that were demanded. This is one of my favorite stories. At a Chicago screening, a man fainted and had to have his pacemaker changed. Once it was changed, he returned to see the ending of the movie. <laughs> And then, like, in, in a similar sense of people being very challenged and frustrated by, by this movie, but also intrigued by it, an L.A. movie theater, two complete strangers got into a disagreement about, in an argument about the movie, and decided to resolve it and just return to the movie theater. That shows the power of cinema to that, bridge any gaps. The true power of uh, the medium. Uh, yes. There was a mixed reception from critics, but those who liked it really, really liked it. Uh, our girl Janet Maslin, who I believe- Ah, uh, Janet. Yeah, our Fight Club gal, right? Yes. Uh, she called it an instant cult classic and concluded uh, her review saying that is as fascinating as it is freakish. It confirms Mr. Lynch's stature as an innovator, a superb technician, and someone best not encountered in a dark alley. <laughs> um. There was another critic, Mark Kermode, who walked out of the film and panned it really badly when it came out. But uh, he started to revise his view of it. And he said uh, in 2016, as a film critic, it taught me that when a film really gets under your skin and really provokes a visceral reaction, you have to be very careful about assessing it. I didn't walk out on Blue Velvet because it was a bad film. I walked out on it because it was a really good film. The point was at the time, I wasn't good enough for it. So uh, wow, I think that's a really good summation of kind of the legacy of this movie. Yeah. And I, I can relate to that feeling as well. Um. And then Pauline Kael uh, wrote a really great uh, review about the movie that was actually uh, Kyle McLaughlin. And then did you say Isabella Rossellini as well? No, that was a mistake on my part. It was just oh. Kyle McLaughlin. Oh, I'll say it again. Uh, Pauline Kael actually wrote a, v a review which Kyle McLaughlin uh, felt really started to turn audiences around once they could see maybe what the movie was about. And Pauline Kael, if that name is familiar to you and it might be if you're listening to a blue velvet is it actually any good podcast is uh she was referenced i believe in uh charlie kaufman's i'm thinking of ending things 
oh, uh, shit. extensively. I believe there's talk about her views and maybe even an extensive impression of her in the movie. Um, so Pauline Kale wrote this review about Blue Velvet and some excerpts from it said, this is American darkness, darkness in color, darkness with a happy ending. It's about a young man's learning through flabbergasting and violent experience to appreciate a relatively safe and manageable sex life. And when Sandy's father, speaking of the whole nightmarish business of the ear, says to Jeffrey, it's over now, the film cuts to daylight. But with Lynch as the writer and director, the homily has a little zinger. That the morbid darkness will be dispelled when thousands of robins arrive bringing love. A dream that she tells Jeffrey to the accompaniment of organ music twitting her vision. When a plump robin lands on the kitchen windowsill, it has an insect in its beak. Um, so Pauline Kale's review really dissected not just her feelings about the movie, but what the movie is saying and how David Lynch makes it and really summing up that ending. And this is, you know, this could have helped turn around how people had started to view the movie who initially kind of just saw it as like pulpy violence, misogyny, whatever. Um, it was nominated for best director. David Lynch got an Oscar nomination, but it was the only movie nominated for best director that year that was not nominated for best picture. Uh, and it did not win. And Lynch still hasn't won. He Oscar. still has not won. I think I I think that's probably okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he will ever try to win. You think and he has enough respect in Hollywood <laughs> as it is right now, or does he really need that Academy Award yeah. <laughs> under his belt? He's like, what if I made a biopic about the Beatles? <laughs> Starring Rami Malek. I really like God. that fella. Uh, um, so, uh, Blue Velvet now has this, like, legacy of being regarded as one of an all-time all great films, especially an example of American filmmaking, American surrealism, and regarded as one, probably in contention for either number one or number two slot for one of David Lynch's best movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mulholland Drive and Blue Velvet are kind of the top two with critics. Um, and it's really had this, uh, this legacy. It's an American classic, um, which is really interesting for a movie that is so polarizing and f Joker and Fight Club are polarizing, but not as experimental and not as out there as this movie. So to achieve that kind of status is really a feat. Um, so those are some of the cold hard facts and, uh, you know, there's there's some things to consider about the history of this movie and some of the other things that might have contributed to the, its success. First off, I really want to talk about the acting because Stefan, in my head, this movie is not what it is if it's not carried by Kyle McLaughlin, Laura Dern, yes. Dennis mm -hmm. Hopper, Isabella mm -hmm. Rossellini, Kyle McLaughlin, Laura Dern are David Lynch's favorites for life. Isabella Rossellini went on to become engaged to David Lynch. Like we've got a cast and also like a, a recurring David Lynch clan here. I wonder if you want to speak a little bit to the, the magic of Kale McLaughlin and Sweetie Pie Dern. Well, that, that seems to be how David Lynch operates is he gets a feeling about someone and then he will cast them if he feels they fit that feeling he's going for. 
um, just by talking to them. He doesn't even audition people with material. He just has a conversation with them and then decides like, okay, you're good for this role that I have in mind. Um, with Kyle, Kyle's kind of seen as David Lynch's self-insert actor mm. a little bit when David has a role that has like a young, bright, young dude. Um, it's usually filled by by Kyle McLaughlin. And Laura Dern is... Laura Dern's kind of evolving. Laura Dern... It, I mean, the, the, the two are interesting, too, because Laura Dern has obviously had also a very commercially successful career and has been in Jurassic Park and Star Wars and just a number of things and in Big Little Lies, Pretty Little Liars. Was sexy in court. In <laughs> yeah, sexy story. in court in a marriage story. Um, Oscar winner. Uh, but Kyle McLaughlin's had a, a pretty different career, has done a lot of TV as handsome bows essentially and then has done a lot of lynch work and then a couple of other outliers like the flintstones movie or showgirls showgirls our other favorite movie showgirls do really love showgirls on this it started off as ironically but i think it's a little bit unironically (laughs) it's just like cats well i love kyle mclaughlin uh personally you really love kyle mclaughlin hey it's cute He's a cutie. Yeah, Kyle, he's a, he's okay. Kyle, Kyle, if you're listening, I want you to know you're a cutie. Not just then, now. I see yeah. you. Saw your video with your tomatoes getting eaten. Very cute. Very cute. And I wish you all the happiness because to me, you are just a precious cinnamon roll who loves Twin Peaks, even if you don't always know what David Lynch is doing. <laughs> you guys want to picture what Joe looks like. Uh, just imagine Kyle McLaughlin, but blonde. And that's it. <laughs> it's, it's a dead ringer for Kyle yeah. McLaughlin. He's got the same bright-eyed innocence thing going on well, that if Kyle you guys, has. If you're listening and you don't know us, I want to tell you, uh, Stefan looks exactly like Laura Dern. I do. <laughs> I, too, have been sexy in court. <laughs> I'm not going to give you any details, but it's happened. That's all I'm going to say. Um, so what's interesting about the casting, though, Kyle McLaughlin, we regard as a David Lynch favorite. Supposedly, though, he was not the first choice for Jeffrey Beaumont, our young protagonist. Um, And he had already worked with David Lynch at this point. Um, But uh, Val Kilmer. Excuse me. That's such a weird pick. Val Kilmer was considered for Jeffrey. Chris Isaac, who's later in the Twin Peaks movie, Firewalk With Me, uh, was considered for Jeffrey. Um, And it seems like Kyle was not the first choice. But now we have like a lifelong, a lifelong uh, working relationship maybe he was just like over dune like he just wanted to move past dune <laughs> and was like uh kyle might bring back some bad dune memories so like <laughs> well i want to i want to talk about dune in a second <laughs> blue, blue velvet feels like a return to form what do you think david lynch the person what impact he had on the success of blue velvet like as an icon as like yeah, a pop or, culture? Uh, not even necessarily pop culture, but just in in the, f- the film world. 
because his movie before this was not good. <laughs> you mean at the time or now? No, at the time. At the time? I'm not sure. Um, the, I don't know how David Lynch would be viewed after Dune. Like, do you know? I mean, I guess it depends. You know, now we have the internet and we hear every single time Zack Snyder's like, it wasn't what I wanted or whatever. <laughs> but I, I wonder how how knowledgeable people could be in 1984, I believe, um, about like uh, if if there was like a meddlesome studio during Dune and could be like, ah, oh, it probably wasn't him. I guess if you're in the industry, you probably know. I don't think David Lynch was a well-known name before Blue Velvet. This was kind of what did it. Like, this was his breakthrough. Yeah, who... Actually, you know what, because Dino De Laurentiis, uh, who is a pretty notable producer, um, produced this. But what I think is actually interesting, and I'd almost forgotten about this, he produced Dune, too. And he had chosen to produce this, but no one would distribute it. So he actually had to open his own distribution company uh, to distribute Blue Velvet. So, I mean, honestly, you know, Dino De Laurentiis might have, like, on his own, kind of kept David Lynch's career going in here and just having even faith in him that he could, you know, do another movie that was good. Yeah. Because after that, it was like David Lynch had Eraserhead, which was like a cult midnight movie. Then The Elephant Man, which had, I think, minor success or was pretty acclaimed. I think it was critically successful because I think that's actually the, one of the least Lynchian movies. And I mean, mm -hmm. the themes of, you know, the Elephant Man's story and play are very Lynchian, but I don't think he was very like experimental or even surrealist with the movie yeah. beyond the concept. And I, you know, people eat up any, he has a disability, you know, type of movie. And also, you know, you have David Bowie. So I think, I think Elephant Man was really respected. Um, and I think Eraserhead was respected to the extent of people being like, oh, whoa, this is really experimental and interesting. So I do think he probably had a reputation, at least in film circles, going into uh, Blue Velvet. And maybe people were still excited about him, but didn't necessarily trust him enough to fund him. Yeah. Um, some other kind of... Uh... Hold on. Um, some other kind of notable things. I mean, we were talking about the cast and the, the folks initially considered for this cast are also really interesting. And it's interesting we end up with who we do. Kyle McLaughlin, who we mentioned isn't necessarily the most notable at this, especially at this point. And Lauren Dern, this is really early in her career as well. Um, but they were not, I mean, pretty much no one who ended up in the original cast was actually who David Lynch originally imagined. Uh, supposedly, the Isabella Rossellini role was written for Debbie Harry, Bondi. <laughs> uh, but she, after she did Thank Videodrome, God. she didn't want to do another weird movie. <laughs> do you think she like she went to David Lynch and was like, "Don't call me. <laughs> I don't want 
your role in your freaky sex movie. <laughs> Don't call me. <laughs> oh my god. Um, <laughs> other people who were considered Sigourney Weaver really wanted to play the Dorothy Valens character, but wasn't able to. Also, uh, David Lynch wanted Helen Mirren to play Dorothy Valens, but then he That's met wild. he met Isabella Rossellini in a restaurant and was like, "That's her." <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a Lynch thing to just meet someone in a restaurant. And I mean, Rossellini really wanted the role too, but just to be like, yep, it's you, baby. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because this is a very, this is a very surrealist movie, but honestly, everyone gets to do a really traditional good performance, except for Dennis Hopper. Like Isabella Rossellini's role is kind of like actress candy. Mm-hmm. In that it's like, it's very dramatic and it's, and she, you have to do trauma and you have to cry, but also see the beauty in things. She said she wasn't sure she could do it, mm-hmm. that she wasn't confident enough in her acting skills that she could do it, I think, at the time. And then he was like, Isabella, sweetie, if you but, nail it, I promise to put a ring on that little finger. <laughs> she said she was so sympathetic towards the character and she so understood in her mind what the movie was about that she wanted to do it regardless. Well, that's good. And she like even risked her whole modeling career. She was like the top model. America's America no like worldwide she was one of the highest <laughs> regarded model. models at the time and she risked her like contracts mm-hmm. by having this really explicit movie come out well other people who are considered for the role include Jodie Foster uh which I believe that's pre uh Silence of the Lambs uh Angelica Houston Diane Keaton Sissy Spacek uh Helen Hunt so really are kind of going through, I mean, really like the starlet either right before or right after, you know, star turns. Yeah. Um, also, Molly Ringwald was considered for Sandy, the Laura wow. Dern character. And uh, supposedly Willem Dafoe and Harry Dean Stanton were considered for Frank. Harry Dean Stanton does work with Lynch eventually, but he didn't want to be violent in a violent movie, which, you know, that's... Fair. I, I get that. Um, and then we end up with Kale and Sweetie Pie Dern and Dennis Hopper. And... Buttercup. No, name name me what's this Buttercup. Is Dern Sweetie Pie? I don't know. I'm, David I'm... Lynch has names for all his actresses. It's kind of weird, but like also kind of endearing, but also kind of weird at the same time. <laughs> what do you think he called Isabella Rossellini? Oh, I don't know. Let me look it up. Pro- Project Blue Rose. <laughs> Probably sugar tits. <laughs> I don't know if they're going to say. Yeah, uh, Laura Dern's nickname is Tidbit. But I don't know if Rossellini has one that we know of. Tidbit? Yep. <laughs> so I... Naomi Watts' Buttercut, Cheryl's Angel Face. And Laura Dern is tidbit. Tidbit, Kale, come over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh God, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> that might have made me change my whole feelings about this movie. Um, well, what a cast. 
and uh, oh, they're all fantastic. They're all. Great. I think you don't have praise for this movie without that first and foremost. Without such a, such like committed and also captivating performances. Yeah, it would be really hard to crown this movie without that. Yeah, I mean, you can't. These are performances you can't look away from, which is very much like just. The, what the movie wants and then last do we think this movie had slightly later in its life praise because of twin peaks yeah for sure i mean even though blue velvet was kind of david lynch's breakout in cinema twin peaks is when he became like a real household Oscar. name yeah yeah where you could say that's a lynchian yeah um some say, I won't say who, maybe us, I don't know, but uh, Blue Velvet reads as a Twin Peaks prequel. You do, it's hard not to see the similarities of everything going on in both films. You are in a lumber town called Lumberton. <laughs> Lumberton. Nailing it. <laughs> yes. Um, Kyle McLaughlin's character is very much a young detective trying to solve crimes and save beautiful women. A bright-eyed young detective. Yeah. Uh, Laura Dern's a sidekick, which maybe only means something to you if you've seen The Return, but mm -hmm. you know, we get there. Uh, and they finally consummate in The Return, too. Spoilers for, for The Return. <laughs> Twin Peaks The Return. Um, that seems awful. Do you think uh, do you think when he made the return that he was thinking like got to got to tie Blue Velvet story together? <laughs> Maybe that could be how David Lynch thinks, actually. Because you could him. look at it if you want to look at like if there's an actual David Lynch canon. If like everyone let him make things the way he wanted to, and he didn't have to like convince producers, you would have Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk with Me, Mulholland Drive the return like inland empire is or, inland empire about oh it's about laura right yeah this is turning into a twin peaks podcast i'm sorry uh <laughs> yeah and it really all of his all of his things go together which makes sense because the return is just an 18 hour movie <laughs> um yeah i I find it interesting because Twin Peaks ha does have so many similarities to Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks comes a few years later and I just wonder if when you have a more accessible Twin Peaks dealing with a lot of similar themes and then you collect a consciousness if people then look back at Blue Velvet and at, through Twin Peaks they can almost say okay I see what he was trying to do there. Mm. I mean... I don't know. You I, saw, see that. I mean, you saw Twin Peaks before Blue Velvet, right? Yes, I did. Did you feel like your perception of Twin Peaks had any influence on your perception of Blue Velvet or for that matter, any like later David Lynch work? Um, Blue Velvet used to be my least favorite David Lynch movie oh, out of the ones I've seen, just because I felt like it was sort of derivative for Lynch, <laughs> sort of standard, <laughs> like it didn't go far enough for me. What's a far enough blue velvet for you? Mulholland Drive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after watching it again for the podcast, I came to appreciate it much more than I did when I was in college. 
It is. Well, I guess you and I have both visited this movie with time in between. And I would say, at least from my own personal experience, that time does wonders for how you and for, I I don't want to say enjoy this movie, but you know, you how, how you feel about this movie, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It it has to grow with you. And just as it grew with the American consciousness. This is true. I mean, if we go back 1986, uh, is, uh, wait, actually hold on. And I I think there's something about both Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet being so revolutionary for the medium that they were in. So here's Um, something to think about. Blue Velvet is in 1986. You know what takes place around that time? Twin Twin Peaks? Joker. Joker. Oh, God. So are Joker and Blue Velvet in conversation with each other? Do you know what also came out during that time? What? Cats. (laughs) Oh, my God. Holy (laughs) shit. (laughs) Holy shit. I think I cut this out of a previous episode, but there was one point where we were saying, should we just do a podcast about how no movie could exist if it weren't for Cats? I think David Lynch is so connected subconsciously with cats that it's kind of hard to ignore how blatant it is in this movie. Can we make that like the sample snippet of the episode? When we put a trailer cut together, we'll just include that part. (laughs) No context. David Lynch is so in the consciousness of cats. Um. Well, that's some facts and just some, some, some light discussion around why this movie might be praised. But uh, I think it's time we really dissect this baby. What do you think, yeah, Steph? I agree. So uh, this we'll is... Put, we'll put on our gas masks. <laughs> we'll, we'll get our patches of blue velvet to vigorously rub. Um, I'll get the wig... And we'll just we'll just breathily sing the praises of Blue Velvet. Um, as I said, this is a very American movie, and so I think the best way to kind of dissect this movie is we gotta talk about its themes because there's a reason, whether you loved it or hate it, that it's stuck in people's heads. I want to talk about repression and gender and heroes and nostalgia. But we're going to do all of that after this little break about a long walk home. Yeah. Blue Velvet includes some frankly upsetting violence against women, but we don't need a movie to tell us the frequency and severity of which violence against women occurs in our country, particularly to women, particularly to women of color, and especially particularly to LGBTQIA plus folks of color. We want to talk to you about A Long Walk Home, a Chicago-based national not-for-profit that empowers young artists and activists to end violence against all girls and women. A Long Walk Home works with artists, students, 
activists, therapists, and community organizations and cultural institutions to elevate marginalized voices, facilitate healing, and activate social change. 20 years before hashtag MeToo, a long walk home emerged as a leading organization in the United States using black feminist justice approaches to combat gender violence and racism. You can visit alongwalkhome.org to learn about their numerous programs and projects that increase resources, opportunities, and creative outlets for society's most vulnerable girls and women. Please consider donating to and supporting A Long Walk Home. Additionally, for every listen up to 25 listens of this episode, we will donate $2 to A Long Walk Home to continue to support the important work they do. Now, back to as we fade out into the next segment let's get this baby back on the road like we're like we're driving an old-fashioned car down our little suburb oh my god to pick up laura dern but in secret what taboo let's do a deep dive and then we're gonna go uh we're gonna put the pedal to the metal and go to the outskirts of our picturesque little suburbs with frank to go on a joyride we're gonna go to where the apartments are you know those those horrible cockroach infested apartments that if you mention if you mention poor people one more time in this episode do i do i have i talked about poor people a lot no Well, I hate them. I hate. Yeah. I hate the poor's. God. They never pay their taxes. Um, all right. <laughs> Ooh, that's too topical, man. Sick word. Um, uh, can you imagine if we recorded this in time for our initial scheduling um, of this Jesus. episode? Things are so different now. Things are so different now. Um, well, we're back, and we're still talking about Blue Velvet. You wouldn't believe it. Um, very, very much an Americana movie. And I think as we start our deep dive here, uh, what better way, what better entry point to start than talking about that American dream element of Blue Velvet that we were just uh, emblems of in our little banter there, Stefan, uh, in, <laughs> in our, in our, in our, in our, around my automobile. Quite. Um, quite show so uh let's talk about the american mm. dream and mm-hmm. blue velvet mm-hmm. <laughs> are you yes. okay <laughs> yes i'm just this is my voice for when i hate poor people mm. i imagine that when they do a parasite miniseries that that's what it's like the park family in the american version are just going to be like Yes, yes, well, you can go, you can go take care of the child in that room over there. Okay, we're going to go have rum dum now. <laughs> uh, that'll be so good. Um, I can't uh, wait. Excellent. Well, 30 years ago, though, before the classic Parasite, there was Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. And uh, Blue Velvet seems to be very much steeped in imagery and sound cues and even in the casting of our beloved kale mclaughlin and what's her nickname tidbit dern tidbit dern um there seems to be some messaging going on about 
Americana, the United States of America, the American dream, especially for middle-class suburban white folk. Um, this is a very white movie. We could say it's intentional. There Something are, tells me probably not. <laughs> there are two people of color in the whole movie. Yeah. Um, is that a commentary or just... <laughs> Who the fuck knows, really? I mean, unless you ask David Lynch, there's like honestly no way to know. Yeah. It was the 1980s in Hollywood. Well, so. and even if you asked him, he'd be like... The answer's up to you. <laughs> and David Lynch's works are pretty white in general. But they're also very much commentary on yes. these kind of white, these white here. Well, I, I guess I don't know if they're intentionally commentary on the white hero, but they're very much commentary on um, patriarchal roles and the, the dashing male hero and very much Americana. And you could say whiteness is inherently attached to that. But again, whether David Lynch is inherently mm-hmm. attaching whiteness to that. We don't know. Yeah, it might be a little <laughs> bit of both. It might be not at all, or it might be entirely. Um. But the American dream, uh, we have, well, we start with a very squeaky white family. Jeffrey comes home to squeaky white family, take care of his father, who's fallen ill, take over the family business, hardware store, blue collar, working with your hands. Yeah, good American um, job. Good American, American job. And then we have Laura Dern, who is blonde uh as blushy as american pie uh she's still in high school and she has her hair up and she's wearing long skirts uh and she basically she cries really <laughs> in basically a really, the taylor swift of the 1980s yeah the taylor swift <laughs> um and her dad's a cop which is like a very like respected everyone knows who he is role um keeping the law in order and so yeah so we we start out our, our two central the sleuths of this uh, movie are our two kids ostensibly uh, you know kyle character jeffrey is in college but theoretically they're kind of close in age based on the movie i think but um but yeah they're they're in their hometown Mm-hmm. It's a very beautiful su- suburb. I mean, do we? Do you want to? You want to break down the the beginning couple minutes of this movie for us, Stephanie? Yeah. So, the beginning moments of this film are kind of it's all of the iconic, a lot of the iconic shots from the movie. Um, you get one of the first, maybe the first shot is of uh, roses mm-hmm. in a garden. Um, roses in a garden, you get a fireman on like a 1950s style fire truck driving down the road and he's waving to the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, what other shots are there? The well, you have the dad who's watering the plants yeah, and the dog and the baby. There's a dog and a baby. Which is important. Which is important <laughs> in a, in a very fight club way where you're like, That's- what? <laughs> That's like the that's the funniest part of the movie. It was is him that scene <laughs> where Kyle McLaughlin's dad is like laying on the lawn and the dog is Trying chomping the at the hose yeah. and the baby's walking towards him on the driveway. <laughs> it's some of David Lynch's really good awkward comedy, just masterful stuff, really. Um, it's important to also note these red, red roses are in front of a white picket fence, mm-hmm. which is in front of a, a pure blue sky. Like, this is really, like, 
the the red roses it's like very american beauty you know that same yeah. kind of association of like that that imagery uses in american beauty as well of like this wholesomeness that also has these feelings of like love attached to it as well but you know and also something that's prim and proper and cultivated you have the very generic white picket fence and then like blue skies as far as the eye can see i think that's the most iconic shot from this movie well that opening shot is that the most iconic shot or is the most iconic shot uh, what quickly follows the sequence, I don't, I think it's actually before the dad even has the heart attack when we see what's underneath the ground. I think, isn't it him having, yeah, you might be right. It's like either right after or right before right. you see it goes underground. And so we have, we have this, we have this 1963, the original recording of Blue Velvet, Bobby Vinton playing over, uh, the beginning we and actually i think we start with the blue velvet curtains mm-hmm. don't we um with that's the, the title. credit sequence yeah. yeah yeah um and you know the song blue velvet and we get all of these imagery it's soft crooner it feels like you're in another time and then we go underneath like this this beautiful mowed grass and it's just bugs just bugs underneath this ugliness within five minutes david lynch is making a commentary about suburbia and americana in this movie which is that underneath this white picket fence and the blue skies is this ugliness is uh you know sort of the seedy underbelly mm-hmm. of the suburb and then yeah and then tragedy befalls the dad gets a heart attack and the baby and the dog carry on <laughs> their merry way <laughs> it's so good and so and and that's just the first five minutes but i think the movie really unpacks the american dream not just with these images of suburbia but kind of in what jeffrey and um oh my god i'm Sandy. blanking Sandy, yeah, what Jeffrey and Sandy represent in this movie. And basically, you know, for being such a thematic movie, it is pretty plot driven. And that plot is only driven because these two characters, Jeffrey and Sandy, are searching for something that is not currently existent in their lives. Jeffrey more so than Sandy. Mm -hmm. Sandy just kind of tags along with Jeffrey's curiosity. Do you think Sandy is more interested in Jeffrey or do you think she also shares his curiosity? I think she shares his curiosity. I mean, she definitely is kind of, she instigates him kind of going to investigate Dorothy. She gives him, she's like, Dorothy lives here. I heard my dad (laughs) talking about it. I want in on this shit. I want to know what's going on here. Well, that's true because, so we're talking, you know, Sandy is like peak, like young American girl. Like we said, she's Taylor Swift. She's got the blonde Mm. hair, the long dresses, the ponytail. She's in high school still. I think it's really important that she's in high school and Jeffrey's in college. And that in itself is one of the attractive things to Sandy is that Jeffrey is older. He is gone he has already seen parts outside of their hometown and he's also very handsome and that is attractive to her even though she has what she is supposed to want as a high school girl in this very stereotypical suburbia this very pleasantville-esque suburbia shout out to pleasantville love that movie um which is like the the blonde high school jock 
and that's the her boyfriend, Mike. Mike. Everyone's favorite Mike. <laughs> Everyone's favorite Mike. And yet she is immediately interested in Jeffrey as this not outsider, but this kind of peek into what could be beyond her existing reality. And drops Mike in like a second. Like is kind of reserved about it at the beginning. Is like, eh, I don't want Mike to find out. But then is just like throws any illusion of that that she was ever into Mike and is like, I am team Jeffrey all well, the way now. It's and it's under the guise of this investigation, you know, too, yeah. where she's like, Oh, I will I will talk to him about these things, but you can't call me when Mike is around and I can't hang out with you because I have plans with Mike. Oh, never mind, I'll just cancel her. <laughs> whatever she says i love that scene i love that scene when he's like uh you want to scope out dorothy tomorrow and she's like i can't i'm seeing mike and then like she like pauses for two seconds and is like okay (laughs) mike's the real victim mike is the real victim he hasn't even actually killed her (laughs) like as soon as he sees her getting chased by frank later in the movie he's like i don't you know what no you guys get out of here (laughs) this is bad this is like out of my pay grade um but yeah i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you've seen you've seen this movie a few times and Mm -hmm. you've also had a longer relationship with david lynch and me and sex is certainly something that's always kind of part of lynching and it's it's never like sexy the closest is maybe Mulholland Drive and even so there's still like an eeriness to it like settling can you kind of lead us to begin to unpack sex in this movie and also what that has to do with like kind of the expectations of these characters their gender roles suburbia um well I think for David Lynch, um, two things are true about sex. One is that sex is taboo to normal suburban society. And two, sex is all about power. Mm -hmm. Um, In David Lynch movies, sex is almost always used in a way to communicate power dynamics. I, I hate to go back to Twin Peaks, but I am just thinking of the the sex scene that happens between Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin in The Return, mm-hmm. which at first I remember feeling was really gratuitous because I was like, why does Kyle McLaughlin have to be touching Laura Dern's titty? But then it was like, she she looks up and gasps with such that's like painful expression as she rides him. It's it. It's really haunting. I I think about it a lot. Sorry, I'm thinking about that scene now. Sex in David Lynch movies is always something that's under the surface. It's always something that people don't really seem to enjoy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do, but it always seems kind of more in a transactional power sense than an intimate, loving Mm-hmm. that's adding to the whole surreal bleakness of it all it's just a communication device I think. yeah well that's a really good segue to talk about then the other two characters in this movie who are almost like the nega version of uh jeffrey and sandy which is uh dorothy and frank and it's like to me they they each are like the other side of the same coin of like the respective gender role. So you have like Jeffrey, who is like the peak, the twin peak 
dashing male hero and he's got like a little butt in his chin you know and he's got a little earring for some reason and a little real butt and a little real butt we do see that butt yeah i, I want to talk about that in a second <laughs> don't let me forget uh, i'm very excited to talk about his butt yes um he is a he's a go-getter in this movie and he wants to save Dorothy. And meanwhile, Frank is evil and disturbing. He is the only character who's allowed to curse in this movie. He's the only one who has swear words in his dialogue, which I think is really interesting. Hmm. Because this movie also has, I think it ranks in like the most uses of the F bomb in a yeah. movie. And they're but, all by him. But they're all by him. I think I would have to look it up. I know it's in it's in like the trivia about this movie. It's either they're all from him or all but one i think initially someone had one but it got cut from the movie and it's mm -hmm. it's just all frank and he's cursing but at the same time jeffrey what i think is interesting is jeffrey is this young kid and he is not interested in nostalgia he is only interested in the things he has not yet explored where frank is this man he's this older man and in spite of his hyper violence and his hyper misogyny and the really disturbing shit he does the one thing that like brings this man down to his knees is nostalgia is uh -huh. the music of this forgotten time is when uh dorothy sings blue velvet and even his sexual assault of her isn't full-on penetrative sex it's like dry humping oh god that scene is so disturbing yeah um and and he tears off a piece of her blue velvet robe and to me it's like the blue velvet represents this time from before you know, mm -hmm. you have this song that is this 1963 song, but also it's the nostalgia of like the feel of velvet itself and the comfort it offers. But the blueness of it is what kind of tints the nostalgia of like this forgotten time, this lost time. And Frank is kind of caught in between like this time where things like sex and, and, and violence and swearing were taboo. You had to repress those desires and now he's like acting them out in a hyper way, but wishing he mm -hmm. could get back to that other time. And meanwhile, Jeffrey just wants to look ahead and he just wants to be a hero. And he wants to like see more of this world, even when it's disturbing to him. And he continues to see Dorothy. And then he explores violence with Dorothy and violence with Frank. He punches Frank. And it's like both of these men who are dealing with the repression, both of their of their expectations and their environment. And Frank is already far gone through this repression. And Jeffrey is fighting to understand where his role even sits mm -hmm. in this like changing time and like in between these two worlds. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting take on it. Um it's also notable to say that Frank has Dorothy call him daddy and has and he calls her mommy. Mommy. Oh, he, he's whole... baby. Oh yeah, he's baby. Yeah. Baby wanna fuck. <laughs> and but she he also has her call him daddy. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Frank, sir, Frank, mm -hmm. daddy. Um, and it really is just like he's trying to create this nuclear perfect 1950s style 
family almost. Like he's taking on those roles and creating them through this sex act. Yeah. Well, and I never thought about that too in the sense of like, why does he kidnap her? Does he kidnap her because she like is emblematic of this thing he wants but can't have, which mm-hmm. is like this Americana? Because she, both because she's a singer and because she succeeded with having the husband and the kid. And he, like, takes that family away from her and keeps her for his own instead. Yeah. And keeps the kid, too. And keeps the kid. So he's just creating this psychosexual illusion or delusion of having that picturesque suburban family life when he really doesn't have that for himself. Because he's always on, he's always portrayed as on the outskirts of the Mm -hmm. suburban society. Like, Mm -hmm. we never see Frank in the suburbia. We see Jack Nance at the end in the Mm -hmm. suburbia. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But we never. What? (laughs) And I don't think we see Dorothy at the end, too, um, in the scene where she's naked and crying. Um, well, and in the very end, when she's not naked and crying and reading. When she's with her her son son. (laughs) at the very end. That's how you can pretty much differentiate Isabella <laughs> Rossellini's scenes. Is, is she naked and crying or is she fine? <laughs> and it's pretty much 50-50. Um, well, there's also, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like, he's always, like, in, like, an office parking lot or, like, in, like, an yeah. open field. Yeah. Or in a seedy apartment or just on the outskirts of where the people who are accepted into the suburbia and if people who are living in that illusion live, he wants it. Well, what's interesting, too, is this is a logging town, which is something that uh, David Lynch is, likes to have reoccurring in his movies. But we don't meet any characters who, like, work in that industry. That's true. We're, like, steeped in this. We have the suburbia, but we see folks who you know, who are on the police force or, uh, you know, the closest thing is Jeffrey's dad, but he, you know, he owns a business and it's like the actual, like, like the hard labor. Yeah. But yet we see all of the environment of like where this labor would happen and, you know, occur. And yeah, it's not a huge step to think that all of the lumber workers live in Frank's side of town. Yeah, and, and that they are Dorothy's on the apartments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't even thought about that, the the environment before and how the environment mm-hmm. changes of when we are and aren't in the suburbia, in the actual and that, suburbia. That's even reflected in the characters themselves. I mean, Jeffrey is picturesque suburban Frank. Sandy is picturesque suburban Dory. Dorothy. Dorothy. <laughs> I mean, in the same way that Dorothy and Sandy kind of represent the classic good girl, bad girl mm-hmm. archetypes. Well, and they aren't even necessarily because is is Dorothy, Dorothy's not a bad girl. She just has his sickness in her. <laughs> the sickness, though, I mean, I think... I think ultimately it's it's this it's this repression. It's like the consequences when you're aspiring to achieve the American dream in the same way that Frank is. And you have this desire that's get gets repressed or on you're on the opposite end and you're Jeffrey and your American aspirationalism, your idea that you are the dashing male hero gives you this amount of hubris that is like 
that makes you feel almost like invincible. Mm-hmm. It's like this movie portrays like, what are the consequences of that? Like on a base level, you're going to get into like money and drug problems. We're going to have broken families. Dorothy is going to have a broken family. Frank is trying to put together a broken family. Um I love that idea because this movie totally follows the classic heroic plot structure, heroic call to action. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jeffrey, who is kind of this unwilling hero figure, gets called to action by the ear. He has to save Dorothy and defeat the evil villain that is Frank. And he keeps he keeps like ignoring the more like practical thing to do because his own hubris is like he has to be the one to do the thing yeah that it's like instead of immediately going to the cops he's like i'm gonna keep seeing dorothy (laughs) scoping out frank and then getting involved in all this and to the point i mean he does ultimately he does get to technically be the hero but like at what cost you know when he breaks down into tears after hitting dorothy there's something like in him that is broken that can't come back at that point yeah it's like the loss of innocence for sure yeah absolutely Um, that brings up a question um do you think jeffrey's curiosity um specifically of dorothy is exploitative (laughs) um yes and This is hard because I think, well, this is actually perfect for this movie or for this podcast because we're talking about why did this get praised, not just uh, what is this movie about. Um, And one of the controversies around this movie and the debates that tend to happen is, is this movie misogynistic. And with David Lynch, I find that to always be a hard question. I think in the same way that it's a hard question for David Fincher. I, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, these are two different directors, but in, as far as like their interests and their approaches, I think they're actually very similar. And it is this movie, especially, really is right on the tightrope of is the movie and the audience exploiting Dorothy or is it the people, the characters within this movie? Mm-hmm. I. I have a hard time even saying I can answer in a way that isn't biased because I think I want, I love David Lynch and I kind of want to defend his movies and see the, what he's trying to do here. What I will say, and you and I kind of talked about this offline, I think, um, but about the scene where Dorothy does show up naked at, uh, at Sandy's house. And you and I had initially joked about this a lot and talking about like, okay, we get it, David. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you really want to, yeah. to see her naked. But the thing is, and this is kind of, again, what I was saying about like that Twin Peaks, the return scene, that sex scene, that's not a sexy scene. That mm-hmm. is not a scene where the camera is looking at Isabella Rossellini's naked body with like interest. It is looking mm-hmm. at it with like abject horror the only people who are sexualizing her, if we're, you know, looking at her through other characters in the scene are, is Sandy and her mom in the sense that they're uncomfortable with her nudity, yeah. which comes from this repression of mm-hmm. their suburban lives. They're uncomfortable. She's not there to, to fuck Jeffrey. She's clearly like a troubled woman in this moment. And, but Laura Dern is so uncomfortable 
with their relationship, but also with, yeah, with the fact that she is completely naked and is just staring at horror. And so is the camera. Do I think you could achieve the same effect without Isabella Rossellini having to be naked? Maybe, but it is something to speak to how she's exploited. I, this, this is a cop out. Mm. I don't have an answer because I think it can be read either way. I, I do think, I think that, I think, I think Jeffrey doesn't see her as a person, but also doesn't see her as an object. Mm-hmm. She sees her like actually kind of like a dog of something to be saved for himself. Mm. And she's not, I guess that is objectifying her. Yeah. He objectifies her, but not just in a sexual way, in a, uh, in an emotional way as well. And then that's interesting because he, she objectifies him. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted, I was actually interested about how, what Isabella Rossellini felt about filming mm-hmm. this movie because my first reaction to seeing this was like wow she's really uncomfortable yeah she looks w- really uncomfortable filming this and I'm like is that her is that the character um so it turns out um she is very adamant that the film set was very comfortable she said this in an interview in 1986 the idea that she was being exploited um that is suggesting that david lynch used me or photographed my me badly to ruin my reputation i resent that because first of all i think it would hurt his feelings but also it takes away from me from my judgment says that i'm so helpless that a director can make me do something i don't want to do i'm not a kid i understood the film it's beyond that i loved it and i didn't want to lose weight or be lit in a protective way or do three weeks of intensive exercise that would have made me so embarrassed to try to look better to try to titillate then I could never have done the scene yeah I mean and I think this is another thing you and I kind of talked about after watching it together like she's not 20 she's not a a fresh face I think she was 34 she's in her mid-30s and has been a model for a long time like Like the most famous model in the world at this point So as much as my instinct when I watch scenes like this is to be like, well, that was probably some perv director. Like, I think she's right. You have to give her the benefit of like, she's a grown ass woman who can decide what she is and isn't comfortable with. Yes, there's some sort of power dynamic between, you know, David Lynch being a director, but Mm -hmm. like, she's a great, like, I, I just, I think those power structures aren't there as strongly as they would be if she was, yeah, like a kid. Yeah. And she obviously was, I mean, I just don't think you become taken with David Lynch, you know, (laughs) unless you like see his vision. You're not like, you're not like, oh, you seem like a normal fellow. Oh no, what's going on here? Like I imagine when they meet in a New York restaurant, she immediately knows like what he's about. (laughs) Yeah, she, she wanted to do this movie so badly that she would risk her whole modeling career to do it because of the content um but that brings us to a good segue about um her objectification of jeffrey and her kind of power use of jeffrey because david lynch also films kyle mclaughlin nude yes for a lot of this movie and this is what i want to talk about with his butt yeah (laughs) talking about the butt we watched this twice together, and the second time we were watching it, I was like, pay attention, because the camera actually lingers on Kyle McLaughlin's butt about as much as it lingers on Isabella Rossellini's breasts. And it's true, and I didn't notice that at first. 
Um, you could say there's some sort of power there or differential there because of butt and breast are different or whatever, but you also see his peen for a half second. He's not wearing that little sock. <laughs> He's naked in that scene. Um, and yeah, she, she kind of sexually assaults him in this yeah. movie. <laughs> Let's um, we don't need to dance around it. I think no. it often is, but like what Dorothy Dorothy's first interaction with him, I mean it's it's difficult because he's also doing something very predatory to her about her consent. So it, her reaction isn't I'm gonna call the police or get the fuck out of my apartment. It's I'm gonna hold a knife to you and make you let me give you a blowjob. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> And so, and then he immediately becomes enthralled with with this because he's he's like, in the same way that she's involved enthralled with Frank. It's like this weird vicious yeah. cycle of abuse going on where Frank abuses Dorothy. She kind of likes it in a psychosexual way, and then Dorothy abuses Jeffrey, and Jeffrey kind of likes it in a psychosexual way. Well, and this is what comes back to the idea of repression. And it's like, I think it's this desperation that comes from repression. You have all of this desire that you haven't been able to act on because it's a very, it, it's taboo or the society is very neutered. There's very specific gender roles you have to step into. It's not proper for a woman to be the dominant one with mm-hmm. typical g- gender roles. And uh, when that repression bubbles up, it just, it, it's gonna, it explodes. And so then these all of these characters keep taking things from one another instead of, and I mean, you know, to answer your earlier question, Jeffrey totally exploits Dorothy. Dorothy also exploits Jeffrey, not just in a, in a sexual power way, but she does. She sometimes doesn't even realize he's not her husband. She's trying Mm -hmm. to get back her husband through him. Yeah. There is a scene where she's kind of in a weird fugue state, almost calling him Don while they're in bed together. And this is this is really a cycle of everyone trying to get something from the other person that they cannot create for themselves in their personal life because of expectations of the American dream, essentially. Yeah, that's kind of what that's like pretty much all of David Lynch's. That's a good thesis statement for David Lynch's work. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why the voyeurism piece is so important here, too, because what does a voyeur do? A voyeur is watching and in a sexual way, you know, watching something that they themselves are not participating in. And so even the idea of being a voyeur, of, Do- of, mm-hmm. of Jeffrey just watching Dorothy and of us, you know, the symbol of the curtains in the corner that feel like someone might be behind the curtains watching these private moments between Dorothy and Jeffrey and this idea that we too, as an audience are observing that we might desire, which is why this movie, it probably provoked such strong. So explosive. Yeah. Yeah. Because people and why people were so disgusted that they would walk out of the theater and then be like, but I need to know how it is. (laughs) I need to see it. Um, Um, that's just the nature of the medium, right? Film is voyeuristic at its heart, and David Lynch just seems to really be putting yeah. the audience in the film in that power dynamic. Well, and that's why Jeffrey is the perfect character for to be the protagonist of this mm-hmm. movie, for, to be the audience stand-in, because he's the one. It's not, you know, Sandy's not 
watching all of this go down. Jeffrey's the one in between both worlds and observing what, you know, this transition between both worlds. And we're the stand-in. We're the ones split between the American dream and all of these things we don't normally get to see in a movie, especially in 1986. You know, this, this ugliness, the bugs underneath the pristine lawn. We've got to wrap this conversation up soon. So I think the, the most logical place to go with all of this then and talking about the voyeurism and the American dream and the desires of these characters is the ending sequence. What do you make of this ending? And more importantly, do you think the ending is reality? Or do you think this ending is another stand-in for a nostalgia for something that doesn't exist? I think on the ending, and I've gone back and forth on this mm-hmm. a lot because it's so open to interpretation. But for me, the ending is one of David Lynch's bittersweet, surreal endings that really would it kind of leaves you more unsettled than just a really straight up disturbing ending. Jeffrey and Sandy have been touched by this. They've lost that innocence. They've seen the repression for themselves. So for them to just live still in this suburban society, like everything's fine and everything's still idyllic and great, you you get kind of bookended. The opening shots from the beginning are played at the end Mm -hmm. again, but there's this kind of and it's the same soundtrack. It's Blue Velvet playing over it. Mm-hmm. But there's just this horror now that like they've seen things and they can't go back from it. They're never really going to be able to live in this state of mind ever again now that they've seen that and now that they know the repression is there. Yeah, I've seen some take. I'm 100% with you. I've seen some takes that that ending has to be a dream for those reasons that... Mm that because they couldn't go back. But I think that is actually what why the ending of it being reality makes it so much stronger because yeah. yes, they can't go back, but they are so desperately going to to go back. Mm-hmm. And it, it's you're right, it's not actually really a happy ending because they're now like that is done. I'm going to repress all this again and subscribe to suburbia. And this idyllic dream with the Robin, but, oh, look, those bugs are still there. Yeah. Those bugs don't go away. Even though you've gotten rid of Frank, there's still millions of more under the roses. Yeah. And it's like, you could see the Robin eating the bug at the end as love conquering it. You could see it as acceptance that both the beauty of love and the underbelly of repression are going to coexist. Or you could see it as a reminder that you can't escape the underbelly. You can't escape, you can't fully repress it. And that's kind of David Lynch's uh, statement to the audience too. David Mm -hmm. Lynch is like, I've shown you these things. You know, you can't unsee them. You can try to go back, but this, this film kind of, it, it feels like it shifted the American consciousness. 
a little yeah. bit. That might be hyperbolic, but... Well, and the most interesting thing is I don't even think there's, like, a moral here. Like, I don't think David Lynch is making a statement of, like, suburbia is bad because if you subscribe to gender roles, you will break up a yeah. family. If anything, David Lynch seems really endeared to those yeah. ideas. Yeah, it's more... He idealizes a, them. It's more of an observation of, like, the extremes here of just, like... It's almost like he loves suburbia because... There is this repression underneath because there is something so disgusting underneath that. And those things can coexist that you can have this pretty exterior and so much ugliness underneath it. I think this movie also dares you to be titillated in the same way that Jeffrey is. And then it makes you want to makes you once you realize you're titillated, be like, well, what are you going to do with that information? (laughs) (laughs) You know, what does that say about you? And I think it's more of a, Instead of trying to point, even though this movie is so much about "quote unquote" society, um, oh, I think all of our favorite is... movies are about society. <laughs> oh yeah, Joker is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, me um, too. I think like, but this movie doesn't explore like the cause of poverty or misogyny or violence. No. It's more of like, will you look inward and? unpack your own desires it's like a call to action almost at the end of like so are are you gonna keep that all hidden are you gonna let it loose what are your desires do you acknowledge them america or are you just gonna be in the reagan era for the rest of your life <laughs> that for me it really comes down to what david lynch wants to expose everything regardless of how it's going to make people feel. David Lynch as a director is a really non-judgmental director. Yeah, he's really objective. He is really objective. And I think that is the role of the voyeur. It, it both requires you to be objective and also requires you to examine your biases that are put on it, which I think is part of also the response to this movie of like, okay, did you were you repulsed by this movie? Why would you be repulsed? Or were you bored by this movie? Why would you be bored? Um, He, he has to be objective because he is one of the few directors who really wants the audience to make his movies something different to them. He's so adamant about not explaining his movies that it seems like he is really interested in your role of the voyeur. And how that, in the same way that the role of these characters, their memory, their nostalgia shades everything, or their nostalgia shades their memory and their reality. Mm-hmm. The voyeurs' biases are going to shade the way they watch David Lynch's movies, especially this one. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Do you have any last thoughts about these themes in Blue Velvet? Um, I wanted to ask if you think after this movie, do you think American cinema became more explicit in its depiction of sex? Or like, do you think that it was just the times? Because in the 90s, we definitely get more openly sexual films than we ever got. Well, I was going to say, I don't think you have Eyes Wide Shut without this movie. Eyes Wide Shut is almost like a response to this movie, hmm. is my understanding. But is Kubrick on record as saying that? Or no, that's just my. Oh, okay, <laughs> I got you. 
I mean, maybe, I don't know. He died before it was done. So yeah. before it came out, um, I mean, not in a way that's challenging like this movie and before this movie, I mean, you still saw titties, you know, yeah. they just weren't like thoughtful titties, <laughs> thoughtful titties, TM. I, it's hard. It feels like this movie had an impact on auteur directors, but did not have an impact on like cinema overall. Maybe. Mm. That's a good, maybe we can think about that over our commercial break Yeah, and, and circle back to that as we finally reflect on the praise around blue velvet um, so before we do that, let's, uh, talk one last time about A Long Walk Home, Stefan. Blue Velvet includes some frankly upsetting violence against women, but we don't need a movie to tell us the frequency and severity of which violence against women occurs in our country, particularly to women, particularly to women of color, and especially particularly to LGBTQIA plus folks of color. We want to talk to you about A Long Walk Home, a Chicago-based national not-for-profit that empowers young artists and activists to end violence against all girls and women. A Long Walk Home works with artists, students, activists, therapists, and community organizations and cultural institutions to elevate marginalized voices, facilitate healing, and activate social change. 20 years before hashtag Me Too, A Long Walk Home emerged as a leading organization in the United States using Black feminist justice approaches to combat gender violence and racism. They believe in centering the voices of survivors of gender-based violence and racial discrimination in order to remove the obstacles that inhibit them from reaching their full potential. You can visit alongwalkhome.org to learn about their numerous programs and projects that increase resources, opportunities, and creative outlets for society's most vulnerable girls. Please consider donating to and supporting A Long Walk Home. Additionally, for every listen up to 25 listens of this episode, we will donate $2 to A Long Walk Home to continue to support the important work they do. Again, you can learn more about them at alongwalkhome.org. Now, let's finish this puppy up. We got shit to do. We got PBRs to drink, and we got to get it going. So let's go, baby. Let's go. Um, all right, we're back. Uh... We're talking about Lana Del Rey, who might be the most, the person most influenced by the success of Blue Velvet. <laughs> um, eyes Wide Shut and Lana Del Rey. Great modern torch rock alt singer songwriter. And all Troubadour for Lana Del Rey. <laughs> um, oh, can you do Lana Del Rey singing Blue Velvet? Uh, let me try. You do a good Lana Del Rey. My daddy, <laughs> no, <laughs> she wore blue velvet. Blue than velvet was the night. I don't know. That was nice. the, no, that was pretty good. If if she like wrote it though, then it'd be like. My blue velvet <laughs> running in the breeze While I sit on the back of daddy's motorcycle <laughs> Yeah, there it is. I, I could see it. <laughs> I'm actually um, surprised she hasn't written a song with, like, a blue velvet reference because she just, like, sticks references into her lyrics really, like, 
without tact. Not, and I'm not saying that pejoratively either. I love Lana Del Rey's songwriting, but I could just see her being like, he was watching blue velvet at midnight. <laughs> and he told me, baby, what a fuck. <laughs> I could see it. Um, that's an, an interesting piece of trivia from the movie is that um, Isabel Rossellini was worried that she couldn't sing well enough to play Dorothy. That is her voice, right? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, she sounds, she sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> she sounds fantastic. Like she kind of speaks, sings it, but it like fits really well in the movie. It's like really moody. Yeah, no, she's great. Everything about Isabella Rossellini in this movie is great, except the wig. It, it's my yeah, one great. fucking awful. Um, Cheryl Lee in Firewalk With Me wears a really bad wig too. So I don't know what's up with David Lynch and horrendous wigs maybe it's the idea of like explicit artifice mm. i wonder if laura dern wears like a a red on fire wig in inland empire when she's like playing uh all alternate universe laura dern are you are you saying the same bad wig that she wears in the return or <laughs> maybe as it's no no the the one with the with the alternate universe character in the vertigo way is uh lost highway with patricia arquette where she plays two characters no i know but i'm saying laura dern wears terrible wigs in the return (laughs) i don't know what it is with david lynch and just not having a good wig person i'm gonna say that was the part that really often took me out of the return i couldn't take diane as a character seriously because of that awful fucking wig and it doesn't even look good on like laura dern's beautiful why you would even do that to tidbit is beyond me and then real doesn't real diane have a red wig yeah it's, it's just even as worse. bad if it's not like, worse it like yeah. looks like she's about to be bozo she look yeah at least she looks like ronald mcdonald Can you imagine a Ronald McDonald TV show directed by David Lynch? David Lynch directed like some commercials that are like really fucking weird. And it's like, why did you invite this man to participate in your consumer activity? Like, what did you think? I think it's PS2 commercials and they're just like terrible commercials. What's the one? Is it Folgers Coffee or something where the two Barbies are talking to each other? It's David Lynch Coffee. It's David Lynch brand coffee. (laughs) Where it's David Lynch talking to Barbie about his coffee, but he voices Barbie and himself. He's like, gee, David, what's in this coffee? It's really good. Well, you know, Barbie, it's like a Colombian blend. <laughs> and it's just like five minutes of, of hushed tones. And then Mattel <laughs> like sent him a cease and desist letter. That's my favorite ASMR video. <laughs> it's a It's a nightmare. You guys should watch that. It's really funny. Please include it in the edit. (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah, I will. Oh, audio of it. Here, I'll put it in here. Hi, David. Hi there. How you doing? Mm, Doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, 
just, it's right. fantastic. It's, <laughs> it's so good. We really have to, we have to get to the central question of this podcast. Uh, how did this movie get praised? Stefan, why do you think people praise Blue Velvet? And in the specific case of this movie, why do you think they praised it later in life? Um, this movie, I think at the time was something like, something that no one had ever seen before or even imagined could be seen in a mainstream American cinema. Um, it's really grounded in its narrative, its cinematography. The performances are incredible from everybody. Um, and it really kind of introduced David Lynch and his sort of auteur thesis to the world. And people really resonated with that and clearly wanted to see more of him and especially as time went on people really after the shock kind of wore off and people became more accepting of it it, it it's really a masterful film on all levels i agree and um to your earlier question about the impact this had on on american cinema um there's a there's a movie podcast I really like that we have no affiliation with, but I'll plug it, The Big Picture, uh, through the Ringer Network. Um, but they talk a lot about how one of the genres of film we don't have anymore is the American adult drama, something that is made for adults, and it's not existing intellectual property. It's just an original adult story that is made specifically for you know not people in their 20s but like you know people who are parents people who are well into a career mm -hmm. and you get those adult dramas kind of a la like um like um like woody allen and uh you know people of his ilk through the 70s and early 80s but i do think with blue velvet you start to see the turn of a more aggressive adult drama that completely dissipates in like the early 2000s what really with like once we get a lord of the rings movie and a harry potter movie it's like donezo mm -hmm. you know it's like it's all out. And then we have like this age of like a lot of teen movies, a lot of sex comedies. We really don't see the adult drama anymore, but this period from like blue velvet to yeah, like eyes wide shut is like 1999 is really this age of a much edgier. I mean, you also end 1999 with fight club. Um, and in that time you have, you know, you have your Finchers, you have your Cronenbergs, you have your Lynch, the the david trifecta <laughs> you have like <laughs> these very like thought-provoking theme very heavy adult dramas that aren't just about relationships that are about something deeper that yeah. are that, and that come at this time it's kind of like what fight club was talking about at this time of like a rise of consumerism you know and like major economic change uh major political change and so i i think i think yeah this movie got praised later in life because it hit america at a time where they did not want to see the things that were in it in the movie and that was an assault on them but once they saw it that reflection was in true voyeur fashion both horrifying and titillating it captured their imagination it captured ours too 
Yeah, I don't even know if we need to get into too much of what do we like about it. I think we both clearly really like, like this yeah. movie and really like David Lynch. I think it's it's a mindfuck. I, I, I still don't have answers about this movie and all of the things packed inside of it. Um, and you really see the foundation of where Lynch brings his career. Yeah, there. I mean, this is pure this is almost a pure twin peaks prequel if you love twin peaks like this is just a a a little like appetizer for that um snack on it num 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 num. Um, and so yeah i mean as just a twin peaks fanatic now i just that just heightens how much i like this movie because they're in conversation with each other which we could spend so many hours talking about but won't because that would be beyond the purpose of this podcast (laughs) (laughs) um so would we agree that we think do we think it's worthy of the praise it got now yes it's modern praise not it's praise not the more polarizing praise. the more this is a landmark of cinema praise yeah. Yes. I I think yeah, this is the first time that I'm like, yes, it's worthy of praise and I think it it got it got the right praise. I think even like that initial polarizing reaction, I think to David Lynch that is praise. I think he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I wanted. Let's award some praises. Yeah. Da, da, da. Okay. <laughs> blue velvet. She wore blue. My daddy oh. loves to praise me. He always makes me wear. Well, I can say velvet oh so blue and yellow underwear. I can say it on hear it. How did this get praised? We have a huge praise kink for blue velvet and David Lynch. <laughs> So let's get it on. Well, how much praise do you think it got? Um, when it was released, I think it got a two and a half out of five. You can go straight down the middle, that polarizing spectrum. And But now I think it has a five. Really? Yeah. I think people love this movie. See, I think when it came At out... Least in film world, people love this movie. I don't know if the average... Zoomer loves this movie, but maybe they just haven't had time. Oh my God. I would love if you are a Gen Z person, and I don't mean like someone like a year younger than us. We're in our mid 20s. I mean, if you're like a TikToker, I want to know what you think about Blue Velvet. Yeah. I really want to know. Has Blue Velvet influenced your TikToks? And uh, that would be pretty dope, honestly. Please DM us at praise underscore pod on Twitter, Instagram. Please let us know if you are a Zoomer who has thoughts about Blue Velvet. Have I ever told you how much I love Gen Z? Oh, I love Gen Z too. They're the future. I mean, no, I have I more like, problems with millennials. Honestly. Yeah, I feel like that if I was in Gen Z, I would fit in way better than I do. Well, we're right on the cusp. That's true. We're like right on the cusp. Yeah. Um, so that's fair. But yeah, I I do not like a lot of millennials. Whenever I see the people in Chicago like not taking the pandemic seriously, they're not people in their early twenties. They're people in their late twenties, early thirties. Uh, anyway, um, I think this movie initially got about two praises. I'm going to go just, just under where, where you went. I think, I think people were just really, really 
horrified by what, or mortified even what was going on in this movie. I wouldn't give it that high. I was going to go more. <sighs> this is hard because I, we haven't done the show enough to figure out what the distance between praises is. <laughs> just, just whatever your heart tells you. This is totally our subjective rating scale and has no objective base whatsoever. I think it's like on a bell curve. I feel like in 1986, it's like two. In like 1996 to like 2010 or whatever, it's like four, four and a half even. Mm. I think now it's like three and a half, four. It doesn't get cited as much. Um, I think honestly, people would would draw more upon Mulholland Drive. Um, That's fair. I certainly do. So yeah, and I think if I think it is very generational. I think if you're like a Gen X film person, Blue Velvet's really important. Um, I think it loses steam. I think millennials would be more of like a Mulholland Drive if you're a Kino Kino fan. <laughs> That sweet Kino. Um, how many praises would you give it? I'm going to give it a five. Five out of five Goddamn. praises. I'm going to give it a four. I really love this movie, but um, there are those questions about that I have about what's intentional and what's just incidental of a white man that's, making movies in the eighties. That's David Lynch's whole MO though. I know. Is that everything is incidental. I know, but that it's in, and it's perfectly fair for me to take issue with that too. That's true. I love this movie, but uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much of this is me drawing upon what I want in it as a voyeur, which is also what makes it brilliant. I love this movie. Um, I also did not love this movie as much when I first watched it versus when I watched it now. I yeah. appreciated it much more now. I think it it rewards rewatches because you have to you have to engage with what's happening um, and start to move away from the plot and move into the head of the characters. Yeah, maybe I'll give it a four and a half. The plot the plot's a little heavy for me. Yeah, and Just also a little bit. It, also it. I'm not going to lie. I actually thought when we watched it a second time, I was paying attention less because the plot, I think once you know the plot, I actually find it a little boring. <laughs> yeah. It's a little too, uh, too predictable. Yeah. It's history. both hard to watch and like boring. <laughs> once you get to like the third act, you're like, okay, okay. Why are we just finally having Jeffrey and Frank interact? And how long is this fucking scene going to go on? But that's also very David Lynch. Um, that one scene at the end of the return where Jack Renault is, is sweeping up peanut shells for five <laughs> minutes and then one uninterrupted shot. Oh what do you, that's not the high pinnacle of art right there. Is that what you're saying? Uh, all right, y'all. Um, well, we love talking about Blue Velvet. It was a great yeah. reprieve from all the things. Um, and we're even more excited because next time we talk to you, it is going to be the best month of the year. I'm so excited about this. October. We're going to be doing a spoopy October, y'all. We're getting spoopy, y'all. Uh, our next film, we're going to be talking about, we're on a David roll. We're going to talk about David Robert Mitchell's It Follows, um, 
which is a very recent movie. Uh, actually, I think we're going to be spending the whole of October kind of talking about movies that are a little bit more recent uh, and that maybe have had an impact on how the direction horror is moving in as a yeah. whole. So uh, I've never seen it follow, so I'm very excited. And I'm excited to jump into a spoopy October. And we're going to be having lots of movie discussions. We're going to have some very packed mini-sodes as well. And we might even have a guest in October. So um, very excited. So please uh, subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us for updates on Instagram and Twitter at praise underscore pod. Don't forget to donate to Long Walk Home as well. Uh, We just hit our 25 listen mark for Fight Club. Uh, So that means $50 is going to Circles and Ciphers. Uh, So we hope uh, $50 will go to a Long Walk Home from us as well. I feel very confident in that. Yeah. Uh, Y'all who are listening have been awesome. Thank you all for joining us for another episode. Uh, And until next time, praise responsibly. I'm gonna make him an offer,